You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between. We at the After the Timeout podcast would like to take a full timeout to talk about V-Reps basketball. Coaches, do you get frustrated by how some players just cannot seem to learn your offensive system? Are you spending countless hours teaching your offensive system to your team just for them to forget by the next practice? You should check out V-Reps. V-Reps was founded by basketball players and coaches to create tools that make learning plays easily a reality. V-Reps allows coaches to turn their 2D playbook into a 3D interactive video game that players can watch on any mobile device on their own time. Don't just have players watch film, have them live it and control the players so that they have a better, more efficient learning experience. It's free to try. Go to vreps.us to sign up today. On today's episode, we're, it's awesome to have uh, Coach Bobby Frazier on. He's the head coach of Brother Rise High School uh, Boys Basketball Program. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me. So um, we wanted to kind of just start with your, your playing career, okay? Um, and you obviously went to North Carolina. Um, but what was the biggest transition for you from you know, playing at the high school level, and obviously you played at a very high level, to the Division One level at North Carolina? Yeah, I, I still remember it vividly when I got on campus. Um, you know, McDonald's All-American, you're a really good high school player, have this really good career, then you get there and we're playing like open gyms with, you know, whether it may be Raymond Felton or David Noel or Rayshon Terry, some of these guys, and I remember just how quick everything was. Um, and I tell that to our guys now, like how every level you go up, freshman, sophomore, college, high school to college, whatever, like everything just gets a little bit quicker. But I just remember like being like, I can't guard these guys. I can't get by these guys. It was like almost, you know, like, like shocking to, to, to a certain extent. I remember going to the strength coach being like, Hey, I got to get stronger, I get faster, I get quicker. And he's, you know, just like, Hey, it takes time and stuff. And and, you know, playing against those guys then for four years and guarding high-level players like that for four years, you, you, you figure it out and you get better. But I just remember the, the strength, the quickness, the size of people. That was just super, super eye-opening. So let's kind of transition to, you know, I'm going to ask you kind of a two-parter because I'm curious because you played for two of maybe the best basketball coaches in the history of basketball uh, between Coach Williams and Coach Richardson. So you know, what are things that that both Coach Williams and Coach Richardson did that, you know, you kind of took when you first started? And, you know, what what are those things that you continue to use to this day? Yeah, well, I, so I, I guess going back to the playing side of it, I was very lucky. So Coach Richardson, when he was, you know, building his program, he was touring all these schools and seeing what he liked and what he didn't like. And he really liked the secondary breaks from, you know, Kansas when he would go to practices and stuff and see what coach Williams was doing there. And so I was very fortunate from a playing standpoint to 
run all these secondary breaks and stuff like that and kind of get that feel and that organization and that flow uh, in high school. And, you know, it kind of seamlessly transitioned and allowed me to start as a freshman point guard at North Carolina, which, which not many people do. So, so that was one thing just kind of not related to your question that I always remember being beneficial for, for my, you know, college career, but, but as far as taking what those two have taught me um, into, you know, my basketball program, I get, you know, coach Richardson was absolutely, absolutely fantastic with details. You know, he could talk about 15 feet spacing in your offense and the way your back is pointed and when you're setting a screen and, you know, he's just so detailed in his motion offense. And, and, and so I've always envied that because, you know, he was so good, but it was, you know, it was very cut and dry, you know, what the players were supposed to do. He, he, we would watch film before huddle and all this, it was before it was so easy you know, he's cutting VHSs up and, and things like that. And we're sitting in his office watching films and he's got detailed notes on certain plays. And, and you know, that's something that I'll, I'll always try to do is be as prepared, you know, as he was. You know, when, when it comes to, to Coach Williams, I think Coach Williams was, he doesn't get enough credit for being a good motivator. Just, you know, kind of this whole encompassing uh, of running a program. Everybody kind of rags him because he, he, he does the same thing year after year after year, but it's, it's like he's throwing, throwing a fastball, you know, hundred miles per hour and saying, Hey, come hit it. Um, but, but it just, his, just his ability to, to be loyal to players, to connect with players, you know, you kind of take those pieces from him and, and, and try to implement them and, and be as, uh, you know, uh, influential in some of these high school kids that, that I am fortunate enough to coach now, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool that, that both those guys I can pick up the phone and, and shoot a text to or call and, and be able to bounce ideas off of, you know, we hit a, a, a big, big, big win this, this season uh, over Fenwick kind of a buzzer beater hit a shot with about five, six seconds left. And, you know, he texted me after the game because one of my buddies is still on staff and showed him the highlight and he texted me, you know, after the game, congratulate me and stuff like that. So just, just stuff like that's pretty cool. And uh, again, unbelievable, unbelievable coaches that I was very fortunate enough to play and learn from. So, obviously, I, I'm sure people know that you won a national title, right, when you were in North Carolina. Um, obviously, you have to – People forget quickly. Like, someone asked me the other day. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we were, we were probably 20, 27 years apart or something, or 17. Uh, I, guess, I guess maybe the younger guys, right? But us guys, guys of my age kind of know, uh, especially our Chicago guys, right? But, obviously, you have tremendous talent, right? And – I. I think every championship, you need a little luck here and there, right? Um, ball bounces your way. Um, but just just in general, what do high-level championship teams possess that separates them from the rest of the teams maybe in their state, right, if it's a high school team or, or just the country? Um, yeah, yeah, you said it first. Obviously, you need talent. Like, like that's, that's whatever, that's what you first need. But, but once you have the talent, obviously there's a lot of talented teams around the country that don't win championships, that don't win, you know, as many games as they're supposed to be. And I think a lot of that comes back to just enjoying each other or being good teammates or, you know, wanting to support your teammate or, or you don't want to get beat or miss, miss your defense assignment because it's going to hurt someone else or if someone else gets beat, you want to be there to, to protect the rim or rotate over, whatever you may need to do. And so that, that's kind of what I think about with our national championship team is like, yeah, you're not going to be best friends with, you know, all 15 guys on the team, but, but, you know, top to bottom one through 15, those are all high character guys that I, you know, 
loved being around on a daily basis. We would laugh and practice. We had so much fun. We enjoyed being around each other. And I think that adds to your performance on the court. So, you know, if, if, if teams are hanging out, and, you know, enjoy each other and, and can laugh and joke with each other, like, I think it's just going to translate to more success and, and more buy-in, I guess, on the court. So I want to flip that now to the coaching side. Um, you know, you have a talented team. You have a collection of talent, right? Um, how, as a coach, do you help facilitate what you just talked about, the blending of the team and everybody enjoying getting together and, and kind of combining all that talent and all those intangibles? Yeah, I think you can do a mix of things. We Every summer, like when we have summer camp, you know, we have, what, 20, 25 contact days in June. We like to, I like to go to, uh, whether it's a, a field, maybe we'll do uh, softball. Um, we've done a game called Danny Ball that I stole from Carolina that it's a med ball. Basically, we play three on three and you throw that over the over a volleyball and that is an unbelievable um you know, workout, but also guys get super competitive into it and, you can, you know, make, make your bracket and make tournaments and do fun stuff like that. I think all those little competitive things, um, you know, really, really allows you to guys, put guys in different teams, put them with different people that, that they may not be hanging out with and, and they can see how they compete and can win and have fun with each other. And I think that, that get, just allows people to, to learn more about, um, you know, their teammates. So Todd and I like to, to do our homework and, and something I had read was when you first started your coaching career, you kind of wanted to, to be in the collegiate game and you started kind of at North Carolina, then you kind of switched to UAB and then you kind of took that hard right turn. Coach Richardson kind of stepped aside and, and you kind of stepped in. So what made you want to come back home? What made you want to coach at the, the high school level? Yeah, I mean, so I, I got out of coaching altogether for a year. I took a commercial real estate job down in North Carolina that, you know, probably could have been very lucrative had I, had I stayed in it, but I, I did it for about eight, nine months and it just wasn't, you know, wasn't what I wanted. And then you know, the job opened up at Brother Ice and I love Chicago. My whole family's here. Like I knew eventually I wanted to, to be back and live in the city and do all that fun stuff. And so uh, you know, took a took a jump at it. My dad obviously was a high school coach for for 27, you know, 30 years, and so uh, it was a little bit in in my blood. But um, you know, kind of took a leap leap of faith, knowing that I loved Brother Rice, I loved Mount Mater, but I didn't know how long I'd be there. You know, what the the future would hold. But I've, I've been there six years now, and again, really enjoy the kids that we have. I think that's what makes it. Uh, so much fun, you know, is when you have a good group of kids and you can say, hey, practice is tomorrow at 8 a.m. or whatever, and everyone's going to be there and you don't have to deal with a ton of headaches. It, it makes coaching uh, a lot easier. So it, it, that was actually going to be, you led in perfectly to my next question, which was about your dad. You know, you had mentioned your dad coached for 27 years. You know, outside of obviously Coach Richardson and, and Coach Williams, I'm sure there, there were many life lessons you learned from your dad, you know, obviously you know, outside of coaching, but in coaching, what were some of those things you learned growing up, just watching your dad or working with your dad, or, you know, I, I think any guy listening to this podcast learns things from their dad. So I'm just curious, what were things you learned from your dad about coaching and, and this career? Uh, I learned, I learned all the four letter cuss words being involved <laughs> in the locker room. That, that was, that was my first experience, but but no, I, lo I loved going to games. I loved going to practices. I loved uh, being in a locker room, like I said. The biggest thing I, I think with him is just, you know, um, his ability to relate to the guys and have, like he, he would just have fun sometimes. Obviously he was very hard and demanding and 
had good relationships. But I remember one time being in the gym, I'm probably like fifth or sixth or seventh grade or something. And he, you know, has the guy shooting free throws at the end of the practice and he comes out of his office and like, you know, has his, he's sagging his pants, has his hat on, he's trying to distract the guy, you know, just being funny and like not really caring about how he looks or being cool or something like that. And, and you know, all the guys, they fall out laughing and stuff like that. And so I, I just think like that, you know, kids really appreciate that. They can, you know, makes you more human, um, you know, to, to them and they can approach you for, for some things like that. So I've always taken that humor, I guess, and that aspect of my dad um, and try to implement that in, 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 in different parts of the practice. Because again, if, you, if you're making a point about somebody's defensive stance or, or, you know, the way they dribble the basketball or something and you're trying to teach them, you can still be humorous about it. And, and other guys will laugh, but they'll, they'll remember it. And so like, it, you take some of that, um, you know, when, 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 when you are critiquing, critiquing guys, but, but again, I, I loved everything, you know, being around Eisenhower and, and my dad's program players and stuff and being the ball boy, it was, it was, you know, so much fun. So uh, let's, I want to kind of go into your, your transition into head coaching. Um, obviously I think, you know, now, Everybody knows that when you become a head coach, you kind of learn some lessons, right? Because everybody usually loves the assistants, right? The assistants are the favorites. They tell they know everything. And then you become a head coach, you know nothing, and then you're you're kind of you think you have it all figured out, but but you don't really don't. So when you first started as a head coach, um, what was your biggest challenge, first of all, and then kind of what did you learn that first year? Um, biggest challenge. I mean. I'll- probably off the court stuff. It's like, you know, at, at Rice, we have an a, a freshman A and B team, sophomore. And so you're, I, you don't really realize this when, you know, you're 20, I think I was 29, 28 when I got the job and okay, you're in charge of all three levels and that's 50 some kids. And okay, you got to order practice gear for everybody and do the bus schedule. And I like, like all this, you like, you just want to coach basketball, obviously. And that's, you know, what everybody wants to do, but you don't really think about all that other stuff that's, that's involved with, involved in it. And so, um, that was eye-opening to me, you know, that first year, just trying to keep your head above water with, you know, you want to do everything right. You want to have sky reports. You want to do, you know, film like you do in college, but you just, then you start to realize like, oh, I don't have three full-time assistants that are getting paid, you know, six figures or something like we're getting lucky to get four figures in high school. So, um, yeah, so that, 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 then you just have to adjust and learn how to be the most efficient, uh, that you possibly can if by still giving, you know, the kids all the energy and effort that, that, that they, they deserve. But um, those were probably two of the, two of the biggest things. And then obviously, you know, when you first start coaching, uh, you want to do everything like coach Richardson or you want to do everything like coach Williams. And, and, you know, you have to learn that, that like, I'm starting doing something like, why, wait, why am I doing this? I don't like this. And like, then you can, you can you realize, okay, I'm the head coach. I can do whatever I want. If I want to do a press breaker this way, if I want to do an out of bounds play this way, like, so you don't have to be exactly those guys, even though they had so much success, you know, you can kind of put your own fingerprints on the program and, and, and you know, do, do things your way. So that kind of leads into one of my follow-ups. Um, you just talked about like doing things your own way. Cause you know, we all, we all play for certain people. You go through programs, you learn it a certain way. So what is, I guess when you were, going through that, what was the process for you of kind of taking things out and, and adding your own? Because I, I think that's an important part for anybody who's becoming a head coach and, and, and simplifying it and make it, making it your own. How did you go through that process? 
You know, like obviously at Carolina, we, we emphasize or Coach Williams emphasize, you know, getting the ball inside. And that helps when you have Tyler Hansborough or Sean May, John Hen, like the list goes on and on. I mean, big time, big time. Tyler Zeller, you know, players that could score with their backs to the basket, they're seven feet tall. It, it's, yeah, it's a huge advantage. You're going to free the line. Then you realize you need to look at your high school team and you have a, a 6 1 center. And it's like, ah, maybe we shouldn't be pounding the ball inside to, to, to that guy. So, you, you, you learn quickly like that, that, that okay, it's, it's not the same. Um, and so I have to figure out what's going to be the best, you know, way for us to score, the most uh, effective way for us to score and, and where we're going to have the, the most highest return. So we, we've obviously bombed it uh, at Brother Rice. That's kind of what Coach Richardson had. And, you know, that's the, if you look at the NBA game, it's trickling down or just threes and layups and stuff. So we've kind of shifted to that. But then there's also things like I'm, I'm putting in a, press break that we did at Carolina and realizing hey, this doesn't really make sense to have your you know, foreman up here. He should be able to go way back down there. And so just little things like that, 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 that you don't really think about as a player, you know, when you're a player, you just, you do everything the coach says, Oh, that, you know, and you take it as gospel, like all oh, coach Williams says is yes, that's, that's the right thing to do. And then once you start thinking about it and doing, putting that in, I was like, Oh wait, that like, we shouldn't do that here. And so those are, those are just a couple of examples. Come to mind. So, you talked about your assistant coaches as well. Um, and obviously none of us have a giant staff, like, like a big time college program, but um, you know, I always think it's interesting how different coaches use their assistant coaches, right? Cause there's so many different styles, whether it be uh, you have offensive coordinators, you have defensive coordinators, you have, you know, so how, how do you go about using your offensive or your, your assistant coaches and, and involving them and, and, you know, what is, what is your kind of dynamic on the coaching staff? I'd say the biggest thing, I don't really have defined like offensive guys and defensive guys. I feel like a lot of colleges are starting to go that route um, for us. You know, I just want them in practice, you know, having, having a voice, you know, I don't want it just to be me the whole time. Um, but also then when they do have a voice, I want it to be, you know, boom, boom, make your point. All right, let's keep the drill moving. Let's, let's keep this going. Um, from outside of that, from like a scouting and, you know, watching film, I love all their input. Like, Hey, you take this game, you know, give me, tell me what you think and that, um, it's hard for me to, to ask them to do so much just cause I feel like even at a cap, so like stipends are so low, like the, you guys know it from a, yep. a time put in versus your hourly way. It's, it's like pennies on the dollar. And so like for me to then say, Hey, you got to do this, 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 and this. I want, I want this type of scouting report. Like, I just feel almost bad asking someone to do that. So I try to take a lot of that on, on my plate um, as the head coach as far as scouting and putting together a scouting report and matchups and things like that. But I obviously, they're on staff for a reason and I value their input and you want them making suggestions in practice or after practice or during games or, hey, let's take a time out here. Or, you know, maybe we should try this play or switch to zone or, hey, he looks tired. Like, you love all that stuff and you want to say, hey, you know, have a little banter uh, with your assistant coaches too. So that's just kind of, kind of how I've treated it. So uh, interesting question. You know, we, we kind of talked about uh, just in game and, and different things in the game. I always find it interesting and we always have one as a coach and most of us have more than one, but what's something you learn from a loss? Maybe earlier in your career, you learned something very specific after you lost or maybe even recently. Um, 
I mean, early in my career, my first game ever, I think was like a double overtime game. We ended up losing that game. And I don't think I had like a sideline two second, you know, we had the ball left with like two seconds left. And I, I was like, I don't know. And like, like we didn't get a shot or, or you know, didn't have something. It's like, yeah, maybe we would have won if we had that play, but we just weren't prepared or weren't organized in that. And so like now I you make a, list of whatever you need for your before your first okay we gotta have a press break we gotta have zone offense we gotta have this and so like I, I don't go into our first game of the year without having something like that like whatever just something that could be organized from a sideline out of bounds two seconds left you need to get a shot off in a tight game but that's uh that's one thing to come to mind and that was our, our first game ever so I was like kind of thrown into the fire there all right and then before I move on we move on to to kind of another topic now I'm just curious What's a fun story? What's a, whether it would be when you were a player in North Carolina or a brother rice or coaching in North Carolina or UAB or coaching a brother rice. What's a, what's a fun story for our listeners that they would enjoy. Um, I mean, now he's going through his stories like, okay, what can I tell? What can't I tell? No, I mean, college, like I can go through a million college yeah. stories hysterical and a lot of them involve Tyler Hansbrough because he's such a clown everybody thinks he's like this uh you know this robot and he's obviously a great great player in Warrior but like one time um we were going out after a win or something like that and he comes out in a full-length leather trench coat like I didn't know why he owned a leather, like a full-length leather trench coat but he acted like he like was gonna wear this out and it was like look good and my buddy Marcus is like dude, go chain. Like, you're not wearing that out. Like we're not going on. So then he goes back into his room and comes back out with just a leather jacket, like not, not full length. It wasn't a trench coat. Then it was just, then he just went leather like half. It's like, makes, makes no sense. But, uh, that, that's one thing that comes to mind. I mean, from a coaching standpoint, uh, like there's just a lot, you just like have a lot of fun being around the kids and you know, the video guy, like we had a video kid in one of my first or second year who would always miss a quarter or miss, something and so then we ended up winning a like a championship in a christmas tournament and he comes like speaking to the team it's kind of dying down like he's like sneaks into the locker after he closed up the camera you know call his name i'm like hey did you get everything and like he's like yeah and then the whole team like erupts and we jump up and like celebrate in the middle of the room like like he just won the championship again so little stuff like that is fun that, that, that i remember and hopefully those guys remember too those are good so let's let's kind of shift a little bit you know you obviously played basketball um, after your college career, a little bit overseas, and and we had Layson Perkins on recently, and we kind of asked him about the difference between overseas and and U.S. ball. What what were the di big differences for you when you played overseas versus when you come when you played uh, in the United States? Um, the biggest thing at first was so like if I'm right-handed, my left foot's my pivot foot, and I'm you know ripping and going right. Like in America, like you can just kind of go and you kind of get this like little half step in between. Like in Europe, like you have to put that ball down before your pivot foot comes up or you're going to, or it's going to be a travel. And so that was like something I had to get used to. And then I, I ran into Shimon Williams, who had an insane career in college, you know, played in the NBA for a little bit and then played at some of the highest level in Europe. And he was showing me, you know, just this like little jab step, move the ball and throw the ball down move. And, and so we literally do that in practice because I thought it was such a good move, especially like when a ball screen's coming to like fake, like you're using the ball screen, we call it Shimon. So like we'll, we'll do a drill where we just call it Shimon. So that's kind of a little side side note, but um, that was the biggest thing from a, a like the weight, like rules, I guess. Um, 
you know, the substitutions are different. Uh, lane was a little bit different at the time. I know they changed that. Um, shot clock would be 24 versus 35. But I, I, I loved, I loved the, you know, playing over there and I didn't play at like the highest level, but uh, it was still a great, great experience. So I, I think it's also interesting. Uh, you, you talked about the footwork, right? And I don't know, maybe that helps a players coming to the United States. What was the, the, the player development like over there? Like some of the things, maybe some of the differences, um, you know, because that's always talked about, right? The differences between European players and players from the United States. Yeah, you can see it with the lower levels. Um, I mean, like these kids are just in whatever program um, from a young age. And so that's, I think it's just emphasized more. And then the young talent, then they're playing professional earlier. They're playing at, you know, 18, 19. Like they, would, they were laughing at me thinking, you know, you know, you played for free, your coach is making a million dollars, like you're an idiot, why would you do that? Like they, the whole college model to them is like, is is so, so bonkers. That one guy was telling me, he's like, I would key my coach's car every day if he made that amount of money and I, and I was making nothing. So I'm like, yeah, you can't do that in college, yeah, Coach Williams. Um, but uh, there's just uh, a couple things that, that, that were different. All right, so I think now that the NFHS has come up with a shot clock, right? This is what we're asking. Um, first of all, are you shot clock guy or no shot clock guy? I'm for it because I think it'll make coaches better. I feel like you have to be, uh, yeah, you know, more organized sooner. Um, so I, I, I think I think it'll be a benefit. The, the teams that would have really good coaches that are prepared for it, or it's going to be it's going to be good. And it's good for the end of the game. I just hated the end of the game in high school where it's like, you know, teams are holding it. Yeah. Two minutes start. Like people have done the studies and they say like the shot clock won't really come into play during throughout, you know, the first three quarters or whatnot, which I agree with. But yeah, end of quarters, end of games, I think it'll make it a much better product. Sure. So you, you just talked about it then. So how, you know, if you're looking ahead, how do you kind of start preparing for it? Um, you know, how can – you start incorporating some of those things to where it's not such a big a shot. Cause I think, I think probably th at some point down the road where, you know, it's coming just about yeah. everywhere. Um, you know, obviously I think you're going to have to get like, you know, end the clock situations into, into your system faster, whether it's a, a hand signal or a color call or boom, Hey, we know we're in this same thing defensively. Okay. If we're under five seconds in the shot clock, Hey, we're going to start switching it every ball so like like hey we're in red and so whatever that may be so offensively defensively you can do a couple things like that um you know i i i just think it's gonna change things situationally two for ones i've always been a big believer in that i don't think a lot of coaches in college are, are that aware or obviously they're aware but i don't know how how well they're teaching it um i think that's a, a thing that should be you know utilized but uh yeah we probably won't do anything like that or play with a fake shot clock until the rule actually gets changed and then we can, we can have it. So you kind of piqued my interest then. Um, you know, you talked about, and obviously it's probably more college, obviously college and NBA, but you talk about, you know, certain calls and, and th things like that, that are, that are automatics. Can you, can you talk about how those were incorporated when you were in college and even, even pro ball? Um, like, it's like, so that was like the end of the shot clock was one. We would, you know, if it was under this, we would, we would always switch like something late, but nowadays you see, I feel like everybody's switching everything. Um, 
So that's that's kind of changed. Um, yeah, I mean, we had we had a fist call. Um, it was just a simple single high ball screen. Uh, we would we would had a couple one four low calls. It was nothing nothing groundbreaking. Um, so I'm trying to, yeah, that, that's kind of it's not a great answer. But it was just kind of just kind of automatics that you had worked into the offense and and the, the flow. Yeah, you guys it was stuff you were dropping defensively too, like you know when you're going five on five half court and then he'd stop and talk about hey realize the situation here you know call it out and so stuff like that well, yeah. i mean that's i think that's really good because i think that's you know based on how we've been playing i don't think that's stuff a lot of people think about you know that to have those kind of things so that's really cool so i i want to get into one more question before we go into our final two segments to wrap up so i recently read a book and i've asked about the last seven eight nine guests uh, on the show and it, it's called the tough stuff by cody royal and he talks about the imposter syndrome as a coach. So for example, something goes wrong, you lose a game, you start to think like, man, am I really supposed to be the coach for this situation? Did I mess that up? You know, even when we played, you know, if you missed a shot late or if you, you, you messed up a, a scenario or, you know, when you were playing, when you, let's say when you got to North Carolina or even throughout your career in North Carolina or into your coaching career, you know, when you first started to be as a head coach, as you said, all those things to go into it. Did you ever feel like you, you kind of felt that imposter syndrome? And, you know, we've had a lot of coaches say so far to this day, they have it. So I'm just, just curious your thoughts on it. Yeah. I think, I think everybody is always, you know, Oh, I'm doing it right. My are the kids enjoying it. Is there a better way to be doing this? Should we have had more success than, than, and like, you say all these things, but then you like try to look back and, and you have it as a player, like, Hey, I was McDonald's all American and at North Carolina and started every game as a freshman. Yet you're still thinking like, Oh, am I good enough? And things like, like, I don't know if that's just a personal thing or just a, a human thing that people are, are always kind of negative or, or on edge. But, uh, I, I would have 100%, uh, you know, say that like thoughts like that have, have come through and, you know, we, we won the Catholic league last year, had an awesome year, so much fun, but it's like, all right, what, you know, am I, am I doing a good job here with this program, with these kids, with the next group? And, and then on top of it, you know, if, if a kid transfers or a kid's not like, Oh my God, what did I do wrong? You know, it's, it's, it, coaches always take that very, very personally. Um, and, and so there's, there's always thoughts like that. And, and I think it's, it's good, I guess, a little bit to be on edge and to always want to be better and motivating and, and, and do the best you can for your kids. But at the same time, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, thinking about that a lot, it, it, it's, uh, it's tough sometimes. So the first of our, our last two segments is, we call it the 32nd timeout. Um, your, your platform, open forum, you can, you can tell a story, you can uh, talk about something, you, you know, you've been looking into, uh, a charity, an outside organization. Um, kind of anything you want to talk about uh, it's a very loose 30 seconds right like you know the ref's not coming over and saying first horn here um but just kind of your form to talk about something that you, that you want to talk about yeah i mean like it said like some it's on the questions you guys sent me talked about an interest there's like probably seven years ago i really 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 got into the game of golf like not just playing it like reading about it courses architecture logos like it's it's a it's not a good thing like my buddies make fun of me and call me a golf nerd and all this stuff but like 
I don't know why I, I love watching it. I love following it. Uh, not even just PGA tour. Like I know there's corn fairy events there in Chicago area. Like it's just, it's, it's, I've gone down uh, a very, very deep rabbit hole uh, and, and have the golf bug bad right now. So if any, any coaches are out there that want to play this, uh, play this summer, hit me up. I'm always, always, always down to play. Problem is you're probably way better than I am. So I don't I know if gonna I, say you just I'm going to say, I'm not coming out to play, play you. Cause uh, I'm going to give you the, uh, I can't get better than an eight index. I just, I'm just like, I'll shoot in the low eighties. Like forever. <laughs> I can never, never really get past that. Yeah. That's way better than I can do coach. Well, I can, I can probably shoot a hundred. Um, all right. So let's go to our last segment. This is a fun segment. We do it with everybody. It's just, we just call it quick hitters. So we're just going to ask you just some, some quick, uh, some quick thoughts and some, some more fun questions. So first one is your favorite collegiate road stadium that you played in. Um, I mean, obviously I love Cameron cause we went four and over there, but outside of that, I love the Palestra in uh, Philly. I think that it was so old. It was so cool. Um, that was, that was probably our, my favorite place that we visited. Uh, favorite restaurant in Chapel Hill or, or that area. Ooh, um, or just a general area anywhere. Yeah, no, Chapel Hill, I'll go, uh, I'll go Carburito. It was like this, this lunch spot in the, the town over. They made really, really good burritos, Carburito. There you go. All right. So now we got it to two-parter. So first of all, ketchup on a hot dog, yes or no. Second place, your favorite place to get a hot dog in the Chicago area? Um, so, like, originally, yes, when I was a kid, uh, yes, I would put ketchup on there. Now that I've become more of a Chicagoan and know, like, the, what you're supposed to have on a Chicago dog, <laughs> I'll say no and act like I don't eat ketchup on a hot dog. Uh, favorite place to get them from? Um, I mean, I'm a huge White Sox fan. I always loved them at the games with the grilled onions and stuff on top, so I'll say that. Yeah. Driving around is probably Portillo's or something like that. Okay. Even though Portillo's, right, so this is a- Portillo's has changed since they, they sold out. They, they, it's, it's, I feel like it's, it's, the quality is not as good. Agreed. I agree with that. All right. So this is a two-parter question. All right. So best pickup game uh, you had at, at UNC in terms of quality, like a game you were like, oh, man, we were like getting after it. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the second one is like the most star studded pickup game you had at UNT. Um, I remember going into my sophomore year feeling like, you know, that's the best basketball I've ever played. Like I really had a pretty good freshman year and then I you know, was coming back. And, and I just remember that summer we would always play in the nights after camp with all the camp counselors were back. And I just remember hitting shots and just, you know, Ty Lawson's here. And I know like he's obviously going to take my spot at some point, but I just felt like, that was the most confident probably I've ever been. And I had you know, foot injury in my sophomore year, tore my ACL my junior year. So I never really got back to that level of confidence. So that's, that's probably the most, uh, you know, locked in, I guess I was in pickup. But then as far as a star studded one, there was a, I think a hundred year anniversary um, right after I graduated a uh, hundred years of Carolina basketball. And like they did a pickup game the night before. And it was like, you know, everyone was obviously everyone besides Mike, but like Antoine, Vince, you know, you go down the list of all, all these Carolina guys that are out there playing. And it was just so, so cool to, to, to see that and, you know, stacks there and, and to be around that is just, 
really, really, really cool. And, and then to play it in the game in front of everybody the next day, Michael was there. He's going to kiss, you know, Dean Smith on the head. And so there's just some, uh, you know, fact that I'm in this, I'm in this photo, you know, in the, in the corner, this little white guy and Michael Jordan's in the middle. It's just really, really cool, cool pictures from, from that event. All right. So as you travel around, you know, you've, you've traveled throughout the United States and obviously throughout the world. So what's, what's a stereotype or something ridiculous of Chicago or the U S if you, you want to talk, you know, foreign and that, you know, you, you heard from people as you traveled either the U S or the world. Um, when I first got to North Carolina, like everyone thinks like Chicago is like, like everyone's a, a and, and nobody's nice and I'm like like come to Chicago like people people are super super like hospitable here and like so that that is one thing that was you know I kind of try to try to squash that because I'm almost like the biggest you know oh Chicago's the greatest city in the world we you know blah 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 and like obviously we have our problems but but it still is a fantastic place and that's why I love living here and telling everybody about it um, as far as the world goes, I mean, I was in Eastern Europe and so we would travel, uh, we were in Serbia, we traveled some crazy places and like you'd see some, some buildings that are torn down. They'd like, be like, yeah, this is what you guys did, Bobby, like point to the Americans on the team, like telling us, I don't know, it's like half joking, half serious, things like that. But, um, yeah, we are, I don't, I don't think Americans are that love, like, I think they love American culture. Like it was amazing. Like East Bay magazine, like guys would like, but they, they heard my parents were coming over and they wanted to order all this stuff and have my parents bring it over. And like, it was like, that was crazy to me. Like um, how much they love American culture, but I don't know if they love, you know, Americans uh, per se. Uh, as it Did you get the last one? This is the first East Bay reference we've had on the podcast. Which yeah, yeah. East Bay, <laughs> East Bay is old school. I yeah. man, East Bay is my favorite jam every month. You got, you got that. And you're begging your mom. Come on, mom. Did you get the Chicago accent thing too? You had to, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I actually, when I moved back here, uh, like I had a buddy that then came up and visited and I was here for maybe a year or two. And he's like, oh man, your, your accent's got even worse since you moved back. I'm like, <laughs> I, even have, like I lived in Bridgeport for years. So like, you talk to some of those. People, right. It's a Chicago accent. Like, yeah, exactly. All right. So last one we got for you, coach. Um, Pre-game playlist as a player and then now as a coach. As What's a, your go-to? I was a big Eminem guy. And then weirdly so, I got into like soundtracks. Like there was one time I was listening to like Remember the Titans, like instrumentals. Like this is like on a you know, 2007 iPod. Um, so that was, I don't know why I did that. But that was, that was, maybe it was like, I was reading maybe Mind Gym or I was reading a book at the time talking about like you know, maybe his meditation. So that, that was that was bizarre. Um, but now as, as a, as a coach, I don't really have a playlist. I just, I, at one point, one season, I started, I ate at Chipotle on a game day and we like won. And so then I somehow like made it a thing. Yeah, like, yeah for sure. And I was like, okay, I can't be doing this every, every day, <laughs> Tuesday, Friday, you know, it's getting a little, a little much, but, but those, those are, I, I've always been a very superstitious person. I don't know why, like, and I know it's so dumb and none of it really matters, but it just makes you, makes you feel a little bit better uh, before a game. Well, coach, we had a lot of fun with this episode. This was definitely one of, one of our most fun episodes. There's some great stories, some great anecdotes. So uh, we appreciate you being on and joining us today. Yeah, no problem. It was fun.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.